Welcome to the Crime Narrative Podcast, where we discuss crime and mystery films. We classify the films into subgenres, and over a number of months, discuss one or two films in each podcast episode. We start with the earliest films in each subgenre and, more or less chronologically, work our way forward to the present day. My name is Ken, and I'm your host. The first series we're exploring is Serial Killers. And just a quick note, at the end of the last podcast, I said the next episode would be about Psycho. But in the interest of actually getting a recording finished and getting it uploaded, we're going to jump ahead a bit. So today I'd like to welcome a new guest to the podcast a friend and colleague, Justin. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Justin, uh, as you know, we're we're looking at crime cinema and and serial killers. So, are you a fan of crime cinema? Yes, it's one of the main types of movies series that I watch, whether it be a movie or a Netflix series or an old style television series. That's usually probably the most common style that I watch. And do you have a favorite subgenre? I like the detective looking for the criminal and facing dilemmas along the way, such as, such as in the case of uh, dirty Harry, someone who might have to bend the rules or might have to make the decision to either, break the rules and violate the accused rights or protect the victim. So I, I find this, I always find that topic something interesting. And as far as serial killers, I like this genre too. I haven't seen as many though. I think it's more, there's far fewer based on serial killers, but it's another genre that I like. Great. So as you mentioned, today we're going to be talking about Dirty Harry from 1971, starring Clint Eastwood and directed by Don Siegel. And just to let everybody know, this film is absolutely going to be full of spoilers. So if there's anybody out there who hasn't seen it, you might want to go watch it first. And Justin, do you want to start off by giving us a synopsis of this film? Sure. First, this isn't a typical serial killer movie. In fact, the serial killer aspect is just a part of the plot, really. So it's more of a story about the detective and his personality, his persona, and dealing with crime. And the criminal happens to be a serial killer. But... The serial killer is, is included rather extensively and it's a good, a good representation of a crazy person and the difficulties in trying to deal with someone like him. So anyway, this movie is mo- mostly about Dirty Harry or Harry Callahan. And I first saw it as a teenager on late night TV. And I remember being 
impressed with it, but I was also very young. Then later I rented it. Maybe this shows my age, but back on VHS when that was a thing. And then later I went on to watch the sequels and other Clint Eastwood movies where I find his persona in many movies, there's a similarity to this character, but this character is more extreme. But I thought the movie was well-made and well-directed and Clint Eastwood does a good job at bringing out the character and someone who just doesn't care about the rules, doesn't care about the accused rights too, when in his mind he just wants to stop the crime. He wants to prevent the next, there from being more victims. So I always liked that aspect of this movie that he just didn't care. He was going to do what he felt like he had to do. Um, even at risk of losing his job or even getting brought up on charges. I found an interesting aspect. This isn't, doesn't have to deal with the plot, but all of the characters, all of the actors who turned down this film originally, they actually had Frank Sinatra cast in the lead role. The, the character, not because he was that big of an actor, he was a big name, but he wasn't in that many films, but they wanted someone in their mid-50s to play the role. And Clint Eastwood was around 40 at the time, but he twisted or broke his ankle on another movie, The Manchurian Candidate. So he had to pull out and John Wayne was offered the part. Steve McQueen, Burt Lancaster, they all turned it down. And then Paul Newman turned it down, but for different reasons. He thought the character was too right-wing for him, and he suggested that Clint Eastwood would be a good fit for it, which turned out turned out to be a good call. Even Robert Mitchum, maybe you mentioned him, apparently turned it down, but though his brother ended up being in the film. And I am glad you mentioned that about the whole, it's, it's not really the focus about a serial killer, but just to clarify, it is, he is a serial killer, right? Yes, yes. And the setting of this, this is in San Francisco, isn't that right? Yes. Okay, great. Yeah, I think that's good, good as a synopsis. So, Let's kind of jump into a deeper dive of this film. This film kind of has a cold open. It shows a shot of a memorial to fallen police officers in San Francisco's history. And then it cuts to a shot of a barrel of a rifle. I think it has some kind of silencer on it. And then we see through the scope the person holding the rifle is looking at a woman in a bathing suit in a, in a rooftop pool. So what do you think of that, that whole opening kind of sequence and, and scenes? I remember it being very eerie with the, the screechy music when you first see the barrel of the gun and kind of the, the humming voices in the background, it, it sounded almost like it could be from a horror movie in a way. But then the soundtrack turned out, turns out to be one of the better soundtracks I've heard. And 
the camera work and the direction in the scene, it just showed me it was well made. The way it panned through the city, the barrel of the gun, the eyes of the uh, serial killer, just the way it was done. It was in the typical style of the early 70s. They ran all of the credits through during that opening scene. And it was a great opening to the film, I thought. With that shot of the kind of the memorial to fallen police officers, I think as viewers, we got a pretty good idea. A lot of this viewpoint of this film, right? Kind of the angle. Yeah, I I agree. I think at this time in the early 70s, there was a lot of protests and riots and a lot of civil rights issues. So this movie made an attempt with that opening seat pan of the fallen police officers saying, well, there's, there's these people who are also victims who've lost their life trying to protect other people. The movie didn't really go into that though. It was just like a, a memorial giving thanks to those people, but then it really didn't get into an issue of, of police or even victims for that matter. It didn't really hit on that too much. Just a little tidbit, I read that I believe there was at least one officer's name on that opening memorial who apparently had been one of two police officers who early in the Zodiac killer case had apparently maybe had an eyewitness sighting of the person who may have been the Zodiac killer leaving the scene of a crime. And then later, in a totally unrelated case, about three months later, he was killed in the line of duty. So then after that, they show Harry Callahan. He's arriving at uh, the poolside murder scene. He finds a shell casing and a note stuck in an antenna, an antenna on the roof. And then from there, we kind of go to a meeting room in the mayor's office, the mayor of San Francisco. I think it's the same note on an overhead projector. This character, Scorpio, demanding $100,000. So what do you think of all that, the finding of the note, the shell casing, anything in there jump out at you? Well, it was a setup of the main plot line in the story in terms of who he's going to be trying to catch and showing a look, showing his insanity and the way the note was written and all of that was a good setup. And then when we get to the mayor's office, um, that was where we get to see Callahan's character and his first lines in the movie was after he was called in to the office and the mayor says, let's have it. And then he says, have what? With his typical squint from his spaghetti Western movies. And then he says, for the last three quarters of an hour, I've been sitting on my ass in your outer office waiting on you. He kind of says that with a smirk. So that's an establishment that he doesn't really care and he doesn't care about formalities or kissing the mayor's butt. 
then he goes through what they found and his, uh, his commanding officer keeps interrupting him, maybe. So he's worried that he's going to say something wrong every time Callahan tries to talk. And then at the end, the mayor seems to remember him from somewhere and then it hits him and he says, Callahan, I don't want any problems like you had last year in the Fillmore district. And then Callahan says, when an adult male is chasing a woman with intent to commit rape, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. And then the mayor says, intent? How did you establish that? And then one of a, I guess you can call this a one-liner or done for comic effect. Well, when a naked man is chasing a woman through an alleyway with a butcher knife and a hard arm, <laughs> I don't think he's collecting yeah. for the Red Cross. No, yeah, that was, that was one of their, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He had the back and forth and he had that great anecdote. Yeah. But he didn't have an angry expression. It was kind of, he was kind of smirking through it. So he wasn't like trying to be a dick, but he was showing that he just, to me, it was showing more that he just doesn't care and that in this kind of situation, he doesn't care about the accused rights as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's only probably about 10 minutes into the film at that point, And yet it's, I think it really shows the pacing of this film is really going to just really go right along. You've, you've established everything. We know what the, who the killer is. We know what he does and we kind of have the, the whole setup there. After that, then we see, we kind of move to a street scene and it shows Callahan going to a diner. And I guess throughout the whole series, it's like one of his standard meals is hot dogs, right? They just want to show this guy is just an everyman. He loves, you know, the classic American hot dog. And then he kind of witnesses this whole aftermath of a bank heist. And what happens there? Tell us a bit about that. Okay. Well, start as he's going into that diner or hamburger shop, whatever it is, little Easter egg here on the, the marquee, the marquee next to the diner is a movie marquee for play Misty for me, which was released a few months prior and was, uh, Eastwood's first movie that he ever directed. And, uh, he directed that after starring in several of um, Joel, what's his name? Siegel. I forget his first Don. name. Don Siegel. He was in several of his movies, kind of almost a mentor. And then he directed his first movie before Dirty Harry came out. Totally different plot character. Actually very good. Underrated. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. But anyway, aside from that, so he walks in, orders his hot dog, and he he instructs the... Uh, the cook or the server, I guess it's the same thing in the, di- in the diner, serving hot dogs. He calls in that there's a robbery in progress, and he stresses, make sure he says, in progress. And then the second he takes his first bite from the hot dog, he hears the gun go off. And then he's annoyed because he has to interrupt his lunch, so he immediately pulls off, pulls out his his giant weapon, his forty-four Magnum, 
as he walks across the street, almost in an aloof manner, like almost he doesn't care the outcome. He takes out two of the bad bad guys, and then he also takes a shot in the leg. Well, not a real shot, just some, what do you call it, from the shotgun, the... uh like he didn't take right, a direct right. blow off. Just like the, what do you call it, the buckshot or whatever. Yeah, the buckshot. He took a few of those in the leg, so he kind of limps over, but he's already shot. The guy the guy with the shotgun is already down. And then one of the classic lines in cinema, one of the most repeative lines is said in this, in this section where, you know, the fire hydrant is exploded. There's water spraying everywhere. Um, the cars flipped over and then a close up to the robber who's on the ground with a shot. I think it's to the shoulder and then back and forth between him and Eastwood. And he says his famous line. Um, do I need to repeat it or what do you think? Yeah, no, go ahead. Why don't you give us your best Eastwood, uh, imitation? Well, I don't have the whole thing. I don't have it written down, but paraphrasing at least the beginning. Part, he says, I know what you're thinking. Has he fired six shots or only five? With all the commotion, I've kind of lost track myself. He motions at his gun, says, but being that this is the 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you have to ask yourself a question. Do you feel lucky? Then he adds for emphasis, well, do you, punk? It's an iconic line, but when he says it this time, he's kind of playing around because he knows the robber isn't going to go for the gun. He's too close, can kick it away before he even reaches for it. But he's kind of toying with him, like, I've got you. And I don't think there was any any chance that he was going to shoot the guy, and the guy knew he had no chance. But it was just another example of displaying his character and then he laughs at the end. And then, uh, okay. And then the, as he's walk, as Callahan's walking away, the robber lying on the ground says, Hey, and puts the gun up to his head, pulls the trigger and nothing goes off. And then he laughs. So kind of showing his character that he's, he doesn't care. And he knew the gun wasn't loaded. And he also knew the guy wasn't going to grab the rifle. And even if he did, he would have he would have kicked it away before anything happened. So, just to be a real stickler, he actually said, and apparently this is a very common slight misquote, but he says, "You have to ask yourself, do I feel lucky? Do you? Well, do you, punk? One thing I I, I wanted to point out in that scene." It's in about 90% or more of Hollywood films in which someone is shot. They couldn't avoid the classic BS Hollywood nonsense of someone getting thrown in the air after being shot. It just doesn't happen. People don't get thrown against walls by gunshots. It's, it's just, it doesn't happen. But I guess, you know, I guess it's a way to signal to the audience that someone has in fact been shot and i guess after that film i i think smith and wesson apparently they were thinking of discontinuing that particular gun but it the movie made it so popular that 
sales actually took off? I wouldn't be surprised, actually. Free advertising. Yeah, free advertising. And another little tidbit. Apparently that was, um, I guess this movie, a lot of the, a lot of the shots, a lot of the scenes are on location in various places in San Francisco and elsewhere. But that whole bank heist thing, that was like a studio. The whole thing was in a studio. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. I guess there's certain things that are more practical to do in a studio. So yeah, that was a great, um, that was a great way to f- further show the audience who this character Callahan is. So then after that, we move on to a hospital scene. And like you said, he's got some buckshot in his leg and he's getting treated there. Yeah, there's just a small line there that maybe plants a question in the audience's mind about his wife. And then, of course, much later in the film, we, we learn about that. And then after that, we kind of, no, sorry, go ahead. No, if you they, want to yeah, add they didn't there. ask for any details. He just mentioned, the doctor mentioned his wife and then he caught himself and just says, sorry. So it's obvious that he lost his wife, but we're not told why. Then we keep going. We have a, a helicopter kind of have a, see the San Francisco skyline. We see a police helicopter. And then Callahan is at a police station and he's being assigned a new partner, Chico Gonzalez. He asks about the Dirty Harry nickname. And then one of the other characters, he comes out with a line that, you know, you'd never hear that in a film nowadays. Absolutely never. With a bunch of racial slurs, but said in an ironic way. And so what's your take on this character, Chico Gonzalez, when we first see him? I found this interesting in that you see this a lot in movies when a detective gets assigned a new character and they're saying, Oh, I, I don't want this. I don't want this partner or this one doesn't have enough experience. I think this was, I can't say it's the first time it's done, but I've seen it repeated in many others and certainly other Dirty Harry movies where um, his last partner's dead because he was shot or injured and they want to assign him a partner with no experience or and he doesn't want the partner. So he starts off by saying, um, telling uh, Gonzalez, he says all the reasons why Gonzalez isn't suitable and then Gonzalez says, so, and then he says, so if I want a partner, I'll get me someone who knows what the hell they're doing. So he's kind of nasty to him. But then within a minute, within a couple of minutes, he's talking with them, no hard feelings. All right, I'm a sign with you. And throughout the course of the movie, they turned out to uh, be a good team, at least in the very, only the few scenes they have a chance to work together. Um, but further developing, um, Callahan's character was when he's talking to David Mitchum, who plays Frank DiGiorgio. And the first thing he says is he calls him Fatso. And then that's when he reveals why he's called Dirty Harry. Well, he never actually says why he's called Dirty Harry, but, uh, 
DiGiorgio says all those terms. Harry hates everyone, and then he lists all of the different the different lines. When I first mentioned that, I mean, I'm not suggesting that those racial slurs are acceptable or anything, and I absolutely understand how they're very offensive and hurtful to people. I would imagine for a lot of people who were amongst the demographics those slurs were aimed at, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be even in a, even based on the intention of the person saying it, it wouldn't be taken. Yeah, it wouldn't be taken lightly and, and rightfully so. So yeah, I, I think I like that Gonzalez character. Like he pushes back. He knows the, he knows the game. You're new to the station. You're going to get some ribbing and challenges and, but yeah, I actually really like that character. So, yeah, then we kind of move right to a right to a shot of Callahan and Gonzalez in a car at night, unmarked car. They chase a possible suspect. They think, you know, oh, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is Scorpio. Callahan gets out of the car, runs down an alleyway. And he starts watching a couple through a window because the man had just gone into the building with a suitcase. And he quickly realizes, yeah, no, this, this isn't him. But then he gets caught and mistaken for a peeping Tom. I thought that was quite a good scene in many ways. What did you think about that whole scene? Yeah, I thought it was a good scene. And Gonzalez comes basically to the rescue here, firing his gun and wants to arrest them. But Callahan says, let him go. And that showed something too. Like he didn't need revenge on these guys that just gave him a, a brief beating. He just let him go because they're, it's not their fault. They, it looked like I was a peeping Tom and that's not what their purpose was. They were looking for the killer. So he just waved it off. Let him go, and it also was a good moment for Gonzalez to show that he had some smarts and can act on his feet. Yeah, I like that scene because, like you said, it showed those things, and it showed that you know Callahan, even though he is a, he has some really deep-seated beliefs and he acts on them, he, he doesn't always take himself seriously. And he recognizes when he messes up. And one thing I really liked in that scene was one of the characters who came in, kind of one of these local type working class bruisers who started, started laying a beating on Callahan. He said he called him a pie hawker. Yeah, a pie hawker. I was really interested. What does that mean? So I looked it up and I saw a couple possible Meanings. I mean, one meaning is just simply, oh yeah, he's a, a peeping Tom. Another word for that is pie hawker. But how did that come about? I don't know. Maybe pie hawkers, people selling pies used to walk in alleys and on the sidewalk and were, had opportunities where they could be peeping Toms. I don't know. But then another site said that a pie hawker is someone who stands outside like a girly show and tries to get customers to come inside, which sounds a bit more believable. Who knows? So maybe it started out as one and kind of morphed into the other. But yeah, I really like that. I, um, I mean, I love old films. I love old crime novels, especially in novels. You really get a, a look into the way 
not only the way things were, but the way people spoke. So I kind of really liked that thing. And then, so let's keep going. So then afterwards, we're called to a scene. Uh, Callahan and Gonzalez are called to the scene of a possible jumper. Someone up on a, a building ledge, he's threatening to jump. And Callahan goes up in a cherry picker. So, yeah, anything you you want to mention there? It's more establishing his character and all of the Dirty Harry movies have this. You have a few scenes like that that have nothing to do with the plot, but establish his nickname tells you why they call him Dirty Harry. Although this is the only movie of the Dirty Harry movie where they actually refer to that name. And anyway, it's just more establishment of the kind of character he is, in this case, any dirty job that comes along. So in other words, he arrives at the scene and he's the one that's asked to go up and bring the jumper down. And when he gets up there, he's not worried about sweet talking him, telling him you'll get help or that. Think of all the people that care about you. If you jump, he just wants to get him down. And he basically says, um, we just, I just want your name and your ID. So we can identify you so we don't have to go through all the blood and the guts after you jump. And then he's, he actually makes the jumper angry to the point where he wants to attack Callahan so he can just grab him. So it's another way to show his unorthodox methods and that he doesn't care. And if the guy actually did jump, he probably wouldn't have cared either. Yeah, just another little tidbit about that scene. Actually, apparently, uh, Eastwood directed that particular scene. I didn't know that. Yeah, Don Siegel allowed him to direct that. Oh, just one, I kind of skipped over a major scene here. I don't know how I missed that, but after the, after the station house meeting with his new partner, we actually see Scorpio you know, he's on a building opposite a church. Yeah, I don't know how I skipped over that. And he's reading the response in the classified ads because that's how they decided to communicate with him. And he's watching two men through a scope and he's putting the gun together and then the police helicopter comes in and stops the attempt. So that gives us a bit of the first look. I think that's the first time we saw the face of the of Scorpio, isn't it? In the opening scene, you saw it briefly. And then we maybe find a bit more about this character. Yeah, we found we find that he's serious about carrying out his threats from the letter. And also it shows me maybe this was unintentional, but he seems like he knows how to use guns. I mean, he has a knows how to set it up, and he obviously has good aim from the first. Yeah, I was going to talk about this later. Um, I mean, we see almost no, we don't get any backstory at all on this character. But, like you said, he's really handy with a rifle. Vietnam vet, like right Could at that be. time. Um, and in and fact, seemed, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I mean, he seemed like in a way he can, he almost looked like a hippie in a way. And maybe, yeah, maybe he was, we don't know, come back from the, we Vietnam don't know, no, or, or, we never find out. Yeah. 
But in fact, Andy Robinson, who played the role of Scorpio, he just, just for his own research and preparing for the role, he actually did his own, wrote down his own little backstory. And, and in his backstory, of which none made it into the film, he was a Vietnam vet in his mind. That's So, yeah, and he gets really agitated there really quickly when he loses sight of those two men he's kind of following with the scope. So... Yeah, it kind of tells us he's a, he's unhinged, this guy. He gets really agitated. And this is something else I'm going to bring up later on, too. But, and I don't know what you think about this, but I feel there's, they're trying to show that Scorpio and Callahan, obviously they're vastly different in many ways, but they do have similarities. They both use violence when necessary, again, for different reasons, of course. I don't know. What do you think about that? I'm going I'm to hammer on that a bit throughout this podcast. What do you think of that? I highly doubt there was any planned connection, the writer of the script, for that. Yeah, they both use violence, but one has no real... At least we're not told why, but it just wants to kill people. And will do what he has to. And I guess Callahan will do what he has to to stop it. I don't know. I, I think one guy is completely other unhinged. And then Callahan kind of doesn't care. There's a difference. But perhaps, yeah, they're both unconventional. I'll give you that for sure. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I, I absolutely i am going to come back to that. Um, I mean, I think it's very common in fiction and cinema. I don't know, kind of a half-baked psychological theory that it's very common for people to hate that which they see in themselves as well. I mean, I know he's a cop. I know he's chasing this guy. He didn't decide to go after him just because he's might recognize something in him that's similar in himself. But I don't know. I, I just... Well, I like when when the, the villain you can actually... You can actually not, if not sympathize for them, but understand them a little bit. And in this character's case, we just get that he's unhinged. I don't really, we don't really get much into his psyche other than demonstration of how unhinged he is. You're absolutely right. We learn absolutely nothing about him except that he's just a nasty, nasty piece of work. So yeah, then. And again, I really love the pacing of this film. It really just really goes along really quickly. And already, you know, we started out with a film from 1955 in the first episode. It's just really indicative of how filmmaking was changing. So then we're back to Callahan and Gonzalez back in the daytime in a car, and they're called to another murder scene. A young black kid, 10-year-old boy, and, you know, it becomes apparent very quickly this is, in fact, the work of Scorpio. They find another shell casing on a building nearby. Then we get some info about the operation back at the headquarters, I think. And then we come to a pretty big scene. Rooftop stakeout at night. Do you maybe want to say anything about that or describe the scene? Yes, at this point, 
it's the the main plot line is escalating. So it's beyond him shooting one person and writing letter about it, but he's actually killed another and he's ready to kill a third. I think he this time his in his note he said he would kill a Catholic priest and he was by the church and he was preparing to shoot one when he was when he was found. And uh in this scene it was a basically a chase scene and he had some kind of high powered weapon. I I don't know I don't think it was the rifle used from the rooftop because it was rapid fire weapon and uh this is where they chased him and as usual like most people don't get hit like there was a lot of shots fired but neither neither Scorpio nor Callahan get hit until towards the end this is the scene where Gonzalez oh no no he's not shot yet that's that comes later a little spoiler but um DiGiorgio's partner gets taken out by Scorpio so at this point now Scorpio has killed a boy in addition to the original rooftop shooting and now he's shot a cop and, and killed a cop. And he's also was attempting to find another victim on the roof. So now we know it's clear that he's plans to carry out every one of these attacks and he's unpredictable and he'll shoot anyone that gets in his way. And he has high powered weapons as well. Yeah. Just one thing about that scene. So just to clarify, you see, or we see, Callahan and Gonzalez on a rooftop and there's a sign up there that says Jesus saves. Are they on the rooftop of another kind of inner city type mission church across from the main church that we saw earlier, I think? Is that right? I'm not sure where. I don't know if it was a mission or if it was just a random sign, but they were near... On that rooftop, it was, it was near the Catholic Church, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. And that's what I'm wondering. So Scorpio was on another rooftop there. Um, what was his intent just to, he wanted to shoot a priest at night, I guess, or? Yeah, well, I think they, they left that building open. So he would go to it. Oh, right. That line about he took the bait. Right. But also he did mention he wanted to, shoot a Catholic priest, as all movies do, you can say, well, did he go to every building and try every one before he found this one? But, of course, they guessed right that he would go there. The Jesus save signs, I don't know if there was symbolism. I mean, you can take that in in different ways, like symbolism that God isn't going to save you from a maniac like this, or that this is what happens when everyone forgets about God. I don't, I don't think the director or the writer, certainly not Clint Eastwood have any, certainly not Clint Eastwood or, yeah. Or, but later, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of coming up with this on the spot, just kind of spitballing an idea. Later in the park with the cross, I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to be, Something related to how Eastwood, the Eastwood character sees himself? Probably not, but 
But one thing I definitely wanted to mention was a scene. Uh, I mean, it's part of that scene, part of that sequence. Just absolutely laughed out loud when, when Callahan's looking through his binoculars and he sees these kind of hipsters in the other building and like a woman is in, like she's in her knickers, black knickers. And then she hears the, the door knock and then she, oh, she, then you flash to, like he follows it to the other side of the apartment and now she's at the door completely buck naked. (laughs) Like just obviously, you know, like these kind of, left leaning hipsters she they're gonna have a swinging night and i just laughed so hard at that and um a couple other things i don't know if you'd say they're themes or motifs or how you describe it but this whole thing of voyeurism i mean you had the thing with scorpio he watches people he he sees where they're going and then he tries to kill them then you know you have callahan mistaken for a peeping Tom, but as part of his job, he also has to watch people sometimes in a way that, you know, he probably doesn't feel great about it. Maybe another similarity between Callahan and Scorpio. I don't know. Just an idea. And then another thing, again, I I wouldn't really necessarily call it a theme, but there's a lot of things related to heights here, right on top of buildings and high shots, crane shots. Mm -hmm. For whatever it's worth, it really just part of the look and feel of the film, I guess. Yes, and I think the landscape of San Francisco lends to that as well, like a lot of the hilly areas, and it makes for good camera work, which is one of the reasons this film looks great, like regardless of the story, a lot of those scenes. If there's any symbolism behind it, I I can't see any. But I guess anytime you look for symbolism, sometimes you're, you're reaching to try to find something that may be there or might, might not. But do you think? In terms of what, what aspect? Yeah, about the heights. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's just like, uh, just part of the look and feel that just, I mean, the guy shoots, Scorpio shoots people from heights. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily think there's any hidden meaning to that or suggested meaning or symbolism, but, you know, like I said, just part of the look and feel of the film. Let's keep going then. So, yeah, we have that scene wraps up and dead police officer. And then we're back at the police station and Scorpio has kidnapped a 14-year-old girl, sent another ransom note, kind of a gruesome thing. He sent along one of her, one of her teeth, sent a tooth that he'd yanked out and he's got her buried somewhere in a box, a ventilated underground box. And he wants money. He wants more money now because they've been toying with him. He figured out it was a, it was a ploy. They never planned to obviously to give him the money the first time around. And then the mayor just says, yeah, let's pay him. This is going too far type of thing. And what happens after that, I mean, Callahan agrees to to so-called deliver him the money. And then we see him at a tech shop getting set up with a wire. We have this kind of little back and forth there in the uh, at the police station where, you know, I forget the character's name. Um, I think it was 
Lieutenant Al Bressler, I think. Not the chief of police, the other, the yeah, other one. Yeah. And he was essentially saying, no, you're doing this alone. But there was kind of a, I think a wink and a nod. Chico Gonzalez is not to go along with this. And Callahan says, well, okay, but make sure he has the night off. I think it's pretty understood that, yeah, he's going to be part of this. Maybe not officially. Yeah. Kind of there things, things go wrong, like a backup. So, yeah, so now at this point it's things are escalating worse. Now he, he has a hostage. And at this point, Callahan totally thinks this is nonsense playing along with his game. He's game. He says the girl's dead already. You know that, but they can't say for sure. So they agree to pay him. So at this point, he's like, I have to stop this guy, so I'll deliver the bag, and he's prepared. He's prepared to stop him any way he can as he tapes the switchblade to his ankle as he's leaving, and Gonzalez is there to back him up via the, uh, the listening contraption that was rigged up for him. So that leads us. Should I continue? Uh, yeah, sure. Why don't you take it, yeah, and just tell us what happens next. So Scorpio calls Callahan on the payphone. He's told to wait. And then the payphone nearby rings and then he figures out it's for him. So he runs to get it. And then basically Scorpio sends him all around the city to different areas where he has to get the answer the payphone to prove that he's alone. And while Callahan is racing around the city on foot. Gonzalez is following him because he hears him. He hears him via the tap, the the recorder that he has. And so he runs him around all throughout the city. And then finally in the park, I forget the name of that park. Do you remember? Um, well, it starts out in a marina and then, oh, right. The name of the actual park where he goes next. No, I, uh, aquatic, I think you said aquatic park. So is there some kind of, who knows, like, like marine, marine world type thing? Aquatic park? I'm not sure, but yeah. I'm not sure, but I think it's a, it's probably a famous park in the city with, uh, a famous landmark. So anyway, he meets them there and you can continue from here because I see your, yeah, I mean, he runs through a tunnel and, yeah, and then he's, Callahan's confronted by some punks along the way. He kind of pulls out his gun and scares them off. He's, he was told by Scorpio to go to the cross at this public park. But before that, Callahan sees someone and announces himself to that person thinking it's Scorpio, but it's not Scorpio. Oh, yeah, and just one thing I want to mention. Did you know, I mean, so Scorpio, up to this point, he's murdered a woman swimming alone. He's murdered a little black kid. And when he was at that church, the daytime scene, it was pretty clear he was lining up two people. At least one of them was meant to be a gay man, like a stereotypical kind of, 
you know, effeminate gay man. That's another thing. I don't know. I mean, everybody has a whole mix of different viewpoints and you can't usually slot them into one way or the other. But again, maybe, I don't know, some kind of hatred of people who aren't like him. I'm not sure. But so then back at the park, Scorpio had told him to go to the cross and he goes to the cross. And then finally, now we hear off screen Scorpio's voice telling him to turn around and raise his hands. I think it's pretty brazen now if the Jesus saves bit didn't, wasn't intentional. This is so intentional. Like he's in a, a crucifix pose against a cross. And then Scorpio comes in and he lays a pretty vicious beating on him. And of course, Gonzalez, who has been following Callahan around by car, but keeping out of sight, hears the beating on the, on the wire. And he comes boiling in and then all hell breaks loose. What happens there? At that point, I don't remember if it's before shots were fired or after, but this is when uh, Callahan takes a switchblade quickly and stabs Scorpio in the leg, which is a pretty nasty wound. And this is where um, Gonzalez is exchanging shots with Scorpio. And the money... The money is gone, like the bag that Scorpio had after he got stabbed. He basically dropped it and slid down the hill somewhere. Yeah, he had, like, they'd already had the bag in his hand when they met and before he started beating him. And then that's when Gonzalez came out and he, he, he called him. And I don't remember if Gonzalez fired the shot first or when he, when he called when he called out if Scorpio fired first, but they exchanged shots. And this is when Callahan stabbed Scorpio to escape. And then this is also where Gonzalez gets shot. And at the time, we didn't know if he was dead or not. Turns out he wasn't dead. So then Scorpio staggers off with a bad leg wound and finds himself to a kind of a free charity hospital, maybe in similar to the area of the Jesus save sign somewhere, somewhere like that, maybe attached to a mission somewhere. Yeah. So the, the whole thing goes haywire. The whole thing goes awry. And, and then the doctor in that kind of charity hospital, he looks out a window and says, Oh yeah, he, he's trying to think, where has he seen this person before, this Scorpio character? And of course, in keeping with the fact that we literally never hear this person's name, we never learn Scorpio's name. And the doctor, oh, he just happened, he didn't take down his name, why would he do that? Uh, but he he looks out the window and he sees that football stadium and he says, oh yeah, he's the groundskeeper, or maybe he didn't say groundskeeper, but he said he works at the football stadium. So by that time, I forget how they found out or ended up at the inner city hospital. I think it was a phone call to the 
to the uh, Lieutenant Bressler, maybe, or something, when when Callahan was lying on the couch in his office. But anyway, so they head over to the, they go to the hospital, then they find out, and then they head over to that stadium. That was a great scene. They they have a tip-off to where he works. So they go to the stadium, and by this point, Gonzalez is out of action. So the guy he originally wanted as, as his partner, DiGiorgio, who is actually his partner in a later Dirty Harry movie. They go along and they get a clue that he's that he's there. They break into his living quarters, of course, without a warrant. But at this point, in keeping with Callahan's character, he's going to break in the door anyway. And in fact, many, many movies, they would have done this. Like the, the, the cop... They're going to go in. They're going to get into that room if they have to. So he goes in and then he, he hears Scorpio moving and he's limping along because he still has that bad leg injury. They turn on the lights of the stadium and this is a great scene with the camera work, but you can see, uh, Scorpio runs onto the field, runs onto the middle of the pitch and then the lights are turned on and then Callahan just shoots him in the leg from, you know, he picks up his gun, aims at his leg, and then he goes down to the field and he puts his foot on his leg that he just shot on the wound and says, where's the girl? And he says it repeatedly and he's stamping on it while Scorpio is just spouting gibberish and he's stamping on his leg because it's the last chance to find the girl who's probably dead already, but he doesn't care about Scorpio at all. He wants to find out where the girl is. The camera angle kind of, they pan out as he's stamping on his leg as they pull out. And that is an excellent scene. And then the next scene, it fades in to them pulling the girl out, the dead girl out of the ground. So I thought that was one of the, if not the most powerful scene in the movie, one of the two or three best scenes. Absolutely love the visuals in this movie. He's standing. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge there in the in the background. It's kind of shot. I, I think I could be wrong. I think it's shot just around dusk, what they like to call the magic hour in in movie in movie making. Yeah, and they're pulling the fourteen year old girl's body out, like you said. So yeah, this is a this is a major turning point in the film. What do you think about this Scorpio character so far? Well, David Robinson, the actor, that's his name, right? David uh, Robinson. Andy, Andy, Andy Robinson. Robinson. He he's good at portraying an he's utter a fantastic psycho. actor. Yeah, yeah, he, he's good at portraying Scorpio as a complete psycho, as the character was. So. As to, we don't know about his backstory, but in this case, it, it could be anything. I mean, you'll find that often psychopaths have had some pretty hard backgrounds and, uh, they, they seldom become psycho out of thin air, but we don't know that, but you, you can guess something happened to the guy and 
There's probably a chemical balance in there. Drugs may be all related, but anyway, he's become this psycho that will, will do anything. And really, and anyway, that part is played well, but we don't really get much private scenes with him in terms of like what, what his life is like other than that he's just. No, we don't. I, I do like that kind of theory about Vietnam. And like I said, that was Andy Robinson's little role preparation. He wrote out as kind of a backstory. And another little tidbit, I guess during the filming, he wore something called uh, Corcoran. I'm not sure if that's the brand name. Corcoran jump boots, which are worn by army paratroopers. Just a little thing. Interesting. Well, I thought like if he was, maybe he, he was a sniper. And I, I forget where it was. It might have been when he was, I forget what scene, but you see him with a peace symbol belt buckle at one point. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even I think, I think Don Siegel commented on that somewhere saying a real truism that the vast majority of nasty people, they don't think they're nasty. <laughs> they really don't. So like his, he, what he said was, yeah, this nasty piece of work, when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see that. Right. And it's everybody else's. Everybody, everybody, most, the vast majority of criminals justify what they do in their minds. But yeah, so that takes us, we're pretty much at the kind of one hour about one hour and 11 minutes, if you want to, I mean, it's very subjective, but breaking films down into the traditional three-act structure. But so, yeah, we're at this point where they found the girl. Another pretty big scene now where Callahan is at the district's uh, district attorney's office. And what happens here? The DA is telling Callahan, and he's sitting there, despite how much he hates bureaucracy and all the BS he has to go through, even he is utterly stunned. What does the DA tell him? Okay, the DA tells him that they already let him go, or they have to let Scorpio go because the rifle was um, obtained illegally, and also torturing a suspect is un, is illegal. And then Callahan says, what? And he says, it's the gun doesn't exist because you didn't obtain it. You didn't obtain it legally. And then he says, well, the law is crazy. And then both of the people in the room kind of look almost shocked at that statement. They kind of raise an eyebrow makes a comment like he's all broken up about Scorpio's rights in a sarcastic way. So in other words, he think it's he thinks it's crazy that he would be let go. And in this case, I think probably most people would feel that it's crazy because now there's four victims and yes, the gun was obtained illegally. I think they if that happened for real, they would they probably find another reason not to let him go. Because this is someone who's obviously dangerous to the point where 
I think there's already four or five victims now. If you include the dead cop, I think that's the fourth or fifth victim. So this is where you get the the topic of um, rights of the accused versus victims' right. I mean, that you can take this scene as an example there. The evidence doesn't count because it was obtained illegally, and you have to obtain it in the right way. And then Callahan, if he had waited, he was trying to get the girl... So he couldn't wait for a warrant. But the girl was dead already. But Cowan says, I didn't know that, even though he, from the very beginning, he assumed the girl was probably dead. But when he broke down the door to get inside to get the evidence, he didn't know the girl was dead. So if he waited, it could have been too late. So this is a dilemma that I think any detective would have to deal with or any cop for that matter. And what do you do? I mean, you can say he's wrong, but if you were in that situation, would you do it? And I think a lot of people would. A few might not. Yeah, no, that scene, I mean, like you said, it it was a bit, I mean, they're trying to make a point. The DA is, uh, I, I mean, there are people who are like that. They will put, they have their absolutists regarding the letter of the law. But yeah, I mean, it is a bit extreme. I, I'm sure they would have found another way, but they're, like I said, this caricature of this DA. Yeah, it sounded, he seemed it almost like a, a professor at some university. Like, you violated this person's rights. Like, I, I think a, a DA, a DEA, even in a very liberal city, yeah, even in a very liberal city yeah, would not be attorney, yeah. looking to let that guy out on the streets again. No, but again, that's kind of the, you know, that's the angle of the film. And you probably would know more about this than me. But at that time in the U.S., there had been very recently, I think, two important rulings. One was the Miranda ruling, and I forget the name of the other one, but it was kind of a a situation in society where it was defining people like, what is your take on this and where you came down on that kind of determined, you know, it was a big debate in society at that time. And then another thing is I could be wrong, but I believe even to this date, even to this day, I believe the 1970s were the most violent decade in American history in terms of street crime. So Scorpio has been released and then we see him at a playground with children. But we also see Callahan is there too or very soon after. And then we see them in a strip club. So obviously Callahan is following him in his, in his off time. Yeah. And this, it's rather humorous because they, when they, Hand to Scorpio's face when he sees Callahan following him, and then Callahan's kind of just smirking when they make eye contact, and then Scorpio rushes off, flustered. And then we go to quite a memorable scene. Scorpio is at some kind of abandoned machine shop, and he pays someone to brutally beat him, and you don't even have to know in advance. Everybody knows why he's doing this. What do you think of that scene? Um, first, 
I thought the beating was very realistic because he only took a four or five real shots plus a couple of kicks and his face was like totally dis- disfigured from the from the beating and a lot of movies you see beatings and you'll see someone take seven or eight blows and they'll just have a bloody lip and this one like his whole eyes swollen his face was brutally beaten so i thought that was done well um i've never known of heard of this kind of service before where you pay someone to beat the crap out of you and yeah someone i think actually actually worked it out i think he paid him 200 dollars. apparently it was 28 dollars per shot i think one that was on the house the guy said because he hated him too then that was to frame callahan but that was one of those like there was no no real evidence for that but he, he tried it anyway and that's when callahan was told to stay away from him and then we just have that scene just to kind of wrap up that loose end with his partner, Chico Gonzalez. They're at a kind of a, some kind of hospital. And yeah, basically he tells Callahan he's getting out of police work and Cal, uh, Gonzalez's wife is there. And then as they're walking down from that hospital, she reveals or Callahan reveals that his wife was killed by a drunk driver. And then we move on and another little kind of nasty scene, just showing what a nasty piece of work Scorpio is. He goes in and robs a liquor store. And I guess one of his, the main reasons is so that he can get a gun, steal the gun from the proprietor. And then we kind of were moving pretty much into the final part of the film do you want to take it from there for a while this so after when he when he robs the story he brutally beats him with a bottle over the head like cold cocks him because he comes across as just this harmless hippie looking guy and as the guy's bragging how the last three people who tried to rob him were taken out in a in a coffin or something like that. That's when he cocked him over the head. So, but this is where he realizes there's nothing he, he can do. He's Callahan's going to keep following him. So he just continues his psychotic behavior. And then he boards a bus with the gun and basically takes the bus and the driver and the kids on host as hostage. Then they can't, They contact the police and Callahan and he makes more demands about helicopter and the money. And in this case, Callahan doesn't want to play along anymore. Well, he he never really wanted to play along, but they ask him to be the bag boy. And then he says, find another bag boy this time. Like he, he didn't agree to deliver the money. I think you've got it. I was just wondering, so... You see him getting on the bus and then you're kind of, or we're at City Hall. Scorpio sent a note in advance, right? Kind of saying something's going to happen, but they didn't know what. And then did they take a phone call from him while Callahan was in there? Or I forget exactly. I how don't that remember worked. if it was before or at the same time, but that's when Callahan realizes 
that this is just going to go on and on and he's not, he's not taking part in the game anymore. So he said, find another bag boy. And then at that point, he's determined to go get them all by himself. You do see Scorpio on the bus. He, he is able to play along a little bit. Like he starts singing with the kids. Like he starts singing nursery songs with the kids while yelling at the driver in front. And then as soon as the kids start to act a little panicked, maybe after he yells at the driver, then he starts yelling back at the kids. He strikes one of the kids and then he forces them to all keep singing. And somewhere during this period is where you see Callahan standing on the top of a bridge as the bus is approaching. And this is, you know, this is a very Hollywood type of scene. You see him standing on the bridge, his entire body looking down on the bus as the bus looks up at him and he's just waiting there. And it is a Hollywood movie after all. And then as the bus approaches, he jumps on the top of the bus and climbs in and uh, drives the bus off the road and another shootout, and then he runs away. So the kids are basically free by this point. And he chases him through a, a quarry of some sort. Right. It's like a, a cement plant, I think. Right. And then there's another, there was a shootout on that. That was actually pretty interesting scene as he's chasing them through the quarry and the inside of the quarry and the workings of the conveyor belt. And then when he escapes, when Scorpio escapes, he finds a boy fishing by the lake and then takes him, takes him hostage. And that's when uh, Callahan comes that for the finale of a scene, do you want to, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add to that? No, no, you pretty much, pretty much got it. I was just wondering that, so yeah, Scorpio runs outside and grabs the kid fishing. Is he fishing in an artificial lake or is that just like a gravel pit that's filled up with grain or rainwater? I'm not quite sure. It doesn't really matter, but. Artificial or perhaps more like a, a swamp, but. A small little lake with water, artificial or real, I don't know. And this is finale. Just reminds me of um, years ago when I, on my grandfather's farm, he had a gravel pit. And there was like a big, it was like that. It was just a big pit that filled up with water and we went swimming in there. I, I don't know. Yeah, very well could have been. It makes me want to watch it again and have a look, scroll through that scene. Um, but anyway, at this point, Callahan knows he can't play along with them anymore. So Scorpio is holding the gun up to the kid's head and he tells Callahan to drop the gun and Callahan motions like he's dropping the gun. And then as if he's pulled out of one of his old Westerns, he quick draws and shoots Scorpio. I guess he shot him in the shoulder and then he falls to the ground and the kid runs away. So the kid is rescued, although it was a risky shot to take, but he figured if he didn't take it, the kid would die anyway, if he even thought that far ahead. And then he approaches Scorpio wounded on the ground, but this time he's a little further away and the pistol is a little closer to Scorpio. So 
he repeats the iconic line from earlier in the movie, but this time he does it, you know, with in a serious menacing tone. And he clearly, he, he clearly, in my view, he wants to incite Scorpio to go for the gun so he can shoot him because he knows he has another bullet and he wants this to end now. And so when he's, after he says, do I feel lucky? And then Scorpio does nothing. Then he has, well, do you punk? He kind of says it like he's, he really wants him to go for that gun. And then Scorpio does this maniacal laugh, like, and reaches for the gun. It was almost out of, it was almost the Joker-esque, that, that sound he made. And he, he reached for the gun and then, and then he finally gets blown away. And then I guess at this point, Callahan, fed up with the system or figuring he's going to be without a job anyway, or just realizing he doesn't like dealing with the red tape for whatever reason or all of those. The final scene, he's pulls his badge out of his wallet and tosses it into the little lake. And then the camera pans, pans away and you get the view of San Francisco again. I thought it was very well done as well but this there's no no joking in this scene it's all serious yeah absolutely agree you you wrapped it up well and yeah like you said you get the zoom out the high crane shot at the end so that pretty much wraps up the discussion of the what happens in the film what about the performances so we we talked about them throughout i mean obviously this is all about this is Clint Eastwood's movie. Yeah, so what do you think about his performance overall? I thought he was right for the part. I mean, he was never he's never chosen for a part for his you know, for his acting abilities, but for this kind of part, he he doesn't have many lines by choice. He's notoriously worked in movies where he's cut out lines of dialogue because they're unnecessary or they don't serve as character. And I thought he makes a perfect Dirty Harry. There's other actors that probably could have done this well, too. Um, I like all of the characters, of, like the sergeant, the the other staff, DiGiorgio. I like the mayor. They, they were all good minor roles. And Andy Robinson was really good at what he did. We didn't get a chance to really know more about him, but he was already beyond the point. Like he was already snapped. So the reasons why weren't the focus of this film at all, but he plays a good psycho. Gonzalez was good. I mean, all of the other characters were minor. So he was the only main part in the movie. I guess Gonzalez would be the co-actor of the, the best, the supporting, the supporting actor of the, Clint Eastwood was perfect for this role as kind of that understated, simmering rage. But he never really loses his cool, not too often. He keeps it under control. The one scene and, in the in the football field where he's stepping on his leg, that's where he's like, he's doing the grimace and the, where's the girl? Where's the girl? Like, he, he does that occasionally in his movies, but he's usually, he's more measured. And this is just the role that was built for... Him as an actor, that's the kind of role he does in a way. 
Um, there's some similarities even to his Westerns, the character in some of his Westerns. And he's even said, like, a lot of detective movies, they're just, they're really Westerns in urban areas in a way. They have similar... Yeah. There's some similarities. A lot of science fiction movies are Westerns in space in their yeah. structure. And Andy Robinson... Yeah, I thought he did a fantastic job in this. Apparently it was his first real film credit. I guess he was, he had a lot of experience acting on the stage. I'm not sure if he did any other major film roles after this. I'm not too sure. What about anybody else? Uh, any other actors you want to comment on? on any, the any mayor, other performances? I think his name was John Vernon. He was a, he was an established, I know he's been, in other, many other movies, not probably as the main character, but he's had many supporting roles. The, his immediate superior officer, I, I forget his name. He was, he was good. He seemed like the way he dealt with Callahan, like occasionally he would have to try to put him in place, but he also realized it was futile to try to put him in place. So he humored him a little bit. Yeah, the character's name was Al Bressler, and he was played by, I think his name, I'm not sh- quite sure how to pronounce, yeah, Harry Guardino. And then Gonzalez, for his limited role, he was, I mean, he had the second most screen time of anyone, including Scorpio. I thought he played a good rookie officer, green. He was green, but he he learned on the job quickly. Yeah, for Everyone did their roles. I didn't find any any actor that didn't sell their role. Great. Uh, what about the direction in this film or any of the other things related to that? I really like the direction of this movie because when I first saw it, I remember it having a, a creepy element to it, partly due to the um, soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin is his mm. name. He's done many others. Yeah. Oh, I love the soundtrack. Absolutely he did other Dirty Harry it. movies, but he's done many movies before and after that soundtracks. And the director, um, he was, he's got 20 or 30 main features to his credit. And this is later in his career, but I noticed his first, one of his first credits was the montage director for Casablanca. So that's, that was a, basically the start of his career and then um the original mm-hmm. invasion of the body snatchers and what else i enjoyed the that film that's one, a really right? good film the original yeah probably not quite as good as the 1978 version with donald sutherland but and he also did um some i forget the name something in cell block it, it was a Prisoner movie, and it was it was highly acclaimed, but it didn't do well. It was one of these movies that was a flop, but was highly was well received. And he did some other movie. Most of them I haven't seen, but he's done some famous ones. And then he directed Clint Eastwood five times. Um, in fact, Clint Eastwood's first movie after the. Spaghetti Westerns, his first or second in 1968, Hogan's Bluff, then Two Mules for Sister Sarah, that was kind of lightweight, then The Beguiled in 1971, a movie that, although it was remade 
it was remade two or three years ago, but not in that way because the way that movie was made, that would not be done today. Yeah, I think I know what you're referring to. Right, right. Did you ever see the original? I don't think I have. But, you know, after doing this podcast and learning a bit more about Don Siegel as a director, I, I definitely going to check out more of his movies. He was one of those directors that, I mean, if you're really into cinema, you, you might recognize his name, but you, if you're just a casual movie goer, you probably might not know his name, which is kind of too bad because he, he did a lot of great films. But at the same time, I think he was one of those directors who felt a bit frustrated that he wasn't given other roles. Apparently, that's something he felt, which... Later in his career, like, he started to go downhill in terms of the number of movies and the quality. However, um, Escape from Alcatraz was really well done. And that was, that might have, that was seven years after this, 1979, and, and that was the next time he worked with Eastwood. And that was really good. And then he worked with Burt Reynolds in the eighties and Burt Reynolds said he was totally he had totally lost it by then, like his mental faculties were going down the drain because they made a terrible movie together. But that was with Burt Reynolds. But anyway, he had a really solid career, but most casual film followers, they, they know five or ten directors, and beyond that, they wouldn't really. Yeah, Escape from Alcatraz in 1979, I love that film. I think partly one reason is, Back in the early and mid-80s, like it showed up on network television pretty early. I remember seeing that as a kid. I don't think it had a lot of brutal or real graphic violence. And it was, yeah, it was a great film. Yeah. I love that And movie. I watched it again recently and it holds up because sometimes you watch a, a film when you're young or a teenager and you really like it and then you rewatch it and it doesn't hold up um, because you're... Your tastes are different, but this one was, I remember liking it, but I liked it better when I watched it recently. Okay. Maybe saw some things you didn't see the yeah, first time around. The actual camera work. And in, in that one, I even Eastwood's acting, I thought was really like he, he didn't play as, of course he was a tough guy, but he was more, you know, his intelligence was more of a role in that movie. Like, finding a way out that was and and by that time he would have been about 50 years old by then yeah. and almost. he was directing most of his own films from basically from this point on from 1971 on he directed most of the films he was in except for a few here and there but anyway i i just remember watching this movie thinking it was really creepy and then i really liked his character because I had seen the spaghetti westerns and kind of these characters that don't talk too much and don't say a lot of gibberish. There's not many wasted words. And you know, whether you whether you agree with his tactics, I mean every every good cop movie has a cop that's breaking the rules or wrestling with whether or not to break the rules or regretting not breaking the rules or getting called for breaking the rules. So it, it's not a theme that's unique for Dirty Harry. It's just a main center point for his character. So 
Yeah, let's keep going. We have a couple more things to go over. Yeah, so this is loosely based on the real-life Zodiac killer who did operate in and around San Francisco. But other than that, I don't think... I mean, it was very loosely based. The biggest thing was the exchanging, like toying with the police. He Zodiac killer sent most of his notes to the to various newspapers. Another thing I, I was kind of wondering about... Yeah, the Zodiac Killer similarity, but that's not too many years after the Texas University spree killer shooting people from the top of... Yeah, I think that was in 1968, I believe. Or maybe that was in 66, maybe. Maybe that had some kind of influence. And, yeah, I mean, we've talked about the rights of criminals and the letter of the law versus getting justice for victims. You want to say anything more about that? And I read Clint Eastwood's take on this before, like some people thought because he did this movie or that he's some right wing guy necessarily. And he definitely is a conservative compared to other people in Hollywood. But he basically said there had been movies about the rights of the accused, which is all fine and good. And but there was very little work being done about what about the victim's rights or the the results, the ramifications of what the victims have to go through. And this movie wasn't even like about victims' right. It was more of stopping there from being more victims. This isn't exactly what he said on her. He did say there, there are, there were several movies focusing on the rights of the accused. So he thought there's nothing wrong with doing a movie that focuses on the other side and that you can be concerned about both in the real world, that it's not an anti, it's not saying that there are never people who are wrongly accused, but there are far more victims of violence than there are people wrongly accused of murder. So that, that's my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up about Eastwood and his, you know, his political views. Because as you rightly, rightly said, yeah, sure, he is known as being a conservative. But this notion that he's an ultra right wing, I think that's probably a bit exaggerated. I don't think he was ever accused that in, of that in the seventies, but I know some people reacted to this film that way. Like you even saw in the movie, um, the Zodiac Killer, like they, they showed the, Dirty Harry being showed in the cinema and someone said they watched the movie and referred to it as like something about Nazi. I forget what they say, but something how this movie was ridiculous because of, because of the, the character. But it's just a cop that we've seen this in many movies, but it was somehow brought to attention in this one. Um, but Eastwood, you know, in fact, John Wayne didn't like his movies because he didn't like that his characters were ambiguous. He wanted it like John Wayne didn't like Clint Eastwood's Westerns because his good guy wasn't really a good guy. His good guy was like very ambiguous. He was very more complex, kind of the anti-hero. And, and John Wayne didn't like his movies for that reason and didn't want to work with him. And John Wayne was like the, the ultimate conservative going back to the 40s and 50s but Eastwood like yeah he, he was 
right leaning, but in most of his movies, you don't really see a sign of that. And if you took aside the, the speech he made for Mitt Romney several years ago, I mean, most people might not have even, might not have even known about his political leanings. And personally, I don't think it should matter because it seems like most of Hollywood has no problem vocalizing their political views. So if someone occasionally says something contrary, I mean, that's good. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I was reading a book, one of the biographies about Clint Eastwood is written by an author named Richard Schickel. And he was a film historian and journalist. And he actually, over the course of quite a few years, became quite good friends with Clint Eastwood. And I mean, he might have become, he might have evolved over the years. I don't know about Clint Eastwood, but he was writing about Clint Eastwood in this biography. And he said, he, talking about Eastwood, is mildly in favor of gun control and strongly in favor of abortion rights and most of the rest of the feminist agenda. He is close to being a First Amendment absolutist and his hatred of anything that hints at racism is very close to the surface. So, and he goes on to say, you might even be more accurate in calling Eastwood a libertarian. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's the word that I was going to mention after what you said. He's a libertarian, but you know, he has, I see him as right leaning, but the fact is it should not matter in the slightest. Like I would not even care about that. He played a character that many Hollywood types would not want to take, especially nowadays because there's almost this orthodoxy of views in Hollywood. So in a way, he's more of a rebel in that fact that he was different from what you find in Hollywood, even as going as far back as the 70s. I don't even see this as a political film, really. A guy that would do whatever it takes to stop a serial killer, whether it meant not worrying about the accused rights or not. I mean, I don't see it really as a political movie myself. And that's not why I like the movie. I don't even, I just like the movie because it's well-made. I like his character. The story is good and it moves along at a fast pace. That's my ultimate view. And the characters Clint Eastwood plays, I think is kind of often plays an anti-hero type in a way. He's not the, he doesn't play the goody two shoes type of good guy, but most interesting characters that are meant to be the good guy are that way. They're not goody two shoes. And do you think this film would get made today? Absolutely not. In fact, even the sequels changed, but they're, if they'd made it, it would be a watered down, like the serial killer would be a white supremacist. It would, Something like that. They, they would only, they would fit it into the narrative, today's narrative. So none of the sequels were as good as this one. Um, but to go back to your original question, I don't think this would be made. I, I have seen cop movies where cops, um, shake down criminals illegally. I see that all the time. Even kidnap criminals. I've seen a recent heist movie where the cop does all of these dirty Harry-esque type things, but the theme of this movie just seems like it wouldn't get made. Of course, with the 
the racial slurs in the beginning that David Mitchum's character says, even as a joke, would never make it through. I don't think it would be made. What about you? Well, no, it wouldn't be made in exactly the same way. No. I mean, yeah, they they probably would take into account, you know, the changing kind of collective outlook of many people, not all people. But, yeah, like I said before, I, I think it really was a film of its time because you had the ultra-violence of the 1970s. You had the recent developments with those kind of changes affecting, like, Fourth Amendment rights, I think it is, regarding search and seizure, I think, like Miranda, and there was one other, I forget the name of the other other law, but no, I mean, they, it would be much different today, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, yeah, let's keep going. Maybe a couple more things to talk about. We have... There's a segment we started in the first episode. It's called Trifles and Trivialities, where we discuss a handful of interesting facts about the week's featured film. And, of course, this week it is Dirty Harry. And, Justin, yeah, jump in at any time and add your own ideas or comment on anything I say. But, uh, to be honest, we've kind of, we kind of talked about the, all the things I wanted to talk about throughout the discussion already. Yeah, we mentioned Mitchum's brother, um, the fact, talked about Don Siegel. One thing I always kind of like to do, maybe it's a bit macabre, but especially with older films, is where are these people now? Well, of all the listed credits, there's only three of the main actors still alive today. That's not including the kids on the bus. I'm sure some of them are still around. But do you know who's still left? I don't know. I I haven't really checked, but... Well, Eastwood himself, he's still around, of course. He's uh, he's 92 years old. Andy Robinson, he is still, still alive as well. I think he's in his 80s. He's still around. And then the only other actor, again, as far as I can tell is the actor who played the district attorney. So I thought that was kind of an interesting symmetry. The only people left, Eastwood, who played Callahan, Andy Robinson, who played Scorpio, and the actor who played the district attorney. Those are the only ones left. Interesting. And then Eastwood wasn't even... The youngest there. I mean, there was a few younger than him, and they're already... Yeah, and they're already passed away. But Eastwood, yeah, still going strong. I think he's pretty much kind of finished with the acting and maybe even the directing. I don't know. Yeah, he's... He might direct again. He didn't say he wouldn't, but he's definitely not been as prolific as he was even five years ago. Kind of talked about all the... Things and trifles and trivialities I had written down, but we kind of got to them in the main discussion. Oh, just to clarify, the name of the actor who played the district attorney, his name, uh, Joseph Summer. And yeah, as far as I can tell, he is still around. 
Still a few years younger than Eastwood. He's 88. Let me say a few words about the sequels. Um, the second, the first sequel in 19, I think it was 72 or 73, Magnum Force, it looks the most similar to Dirty Harry because it comes only a year later. But it's inferior in every way. And in fact, ironically, Eastwood is trying to bring some vigilantes to justice in this one. So it's made, I don't, I doubt it was based on backlash. At least I hope not. But the director of that one was Ted Post. It looks good, but the story is not as interesting. And then the Enforcer, this one used to be replayed on TV all the time. It was, it was very good. And this time his partner that he's forced to work with is a female. So the kind of a sign of the times and he's resisting that. But the story in that one is pretty good. Um, and then next one, mid eighties, sudden impact. And this one is also about a serial killer, but the serial killer is someone who's been raped. So she's tracking down all of the, all of her rapists and Eastwood is a dirty Harry supposed to be preventing this, but in the end kind of letting it happen. And then the last one, which was kind of weak, was called the Deadpool. Also Jim Carrey's first movie. He had a, he had a little cameo in there where he played, he, he played a musician who was dying of a drug overdose, which he, you can find a bit on him talking about this on YouTube. Have you ever seen this? He does a bit about this, his first um, audition for a part in a Clint Eastwood movie, and he does this hilarious routine about how he how he got the bit to be in, how he got the part, and then all of that to go through. And his only scene was dying of a drug overdose, and um, that he made a video and he went through all these contortions, and then later Clint Eastwood said he saw it, and he goes, he goes, I saw your video. With a big smirk and <laughs> you know that's pretty good. You do a pretty good this. imitation of Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and Jim Carrey's watches piece on it. But anyway, that was the last Dirty Harry movie. That one wasn't very good. It just seemed like a way to sign off the character. This was late eighties, I think. Um but the Enforcer and Sudden Impact, those were pretty good. That basically covers it, but this is the best one of the bunch. Um, overall, very good movie. Yeah, I absolutely love this movie. I think I'm pretty sure I've seen all the sequels, although I couldn't really, if you asked me about a particular one, I couldn't tell you the plots aside from what you just informed us about. But yeah, I'd like to rewatch them all at some point. Yeah, just to, do you have any more, like for this segment, trifles and trivialities? Um, well, I guess we already talked about David Mitchum, so. Right. That, that was ironic that they actually asked Robert Mitchum at one point was. Yeah. It's on That's right. one of the yeah. people they were considering yeah. for the part. And it, I will just not the same movie, but about Clint Eastwood not being the first choice. Same thing that happened with 
Sergio Leone, Leone's spaghetti westerns. Basically, they chose Clint Eastwood for two reasons. He was cheaper than the other peoples they were in who turned down the role. Like James Colburn didn't take the role because he was too expensive. And in the end, Sergio Leone said they wanted Clint Eastwood because he was right for the man with no name part because more than an actor, quote, more than an actor, I needed a mask. And Eastwood at that time only had two expressions with hat <laughs> and no hat. <laughs> uh, it's perfect. But, and notoriously, he, he cut more than half of the lines of dialogue from that character he cut, which made the character even more iconic. So, but this Dirty Harry was the movie that basically lifted him to the next level in terms of box office star. Like he wasn't really a box office star until this movie. So, but it was well made. It wasn't just, wasn't just a popcorn movie. And just a couple more. I, I don't think you mentioned these two, but I read elsewhere that also Lee Marvin at one point was offered and George C. Scott as well. So the, a who's who of big names at that time all passed for whatever reason. And the original, the original plot was different as well. I read, I read that. Yeah, I don't remember all the details. I read that as well. Quite a bit was changed. Apparently in one version they had snipers coming into that final scene and Eastwood just said, no, you're just changing the whole, that just doesn't work. Let's stick with the original, the screenplay by the original, you know, just to give them a shout out. It was the screenwriter was Harry Julian Fink and his wife, Rita Fink. All right. So let's keep going. Just really one last segment to talk about. This segment is called MDNA or Movie DNA. And in this segment, we talk about what other films might have influenced this one and how this film itself went on to influence other movies or pop culture in general. But again, like the previous segment, we've kind of gone over most of those things already. Yeah, I mean... As you said, he wasn't the first loose cannon who took the law into his own hands, this character. But surely the success of this film absolutely must have influenced others. Am I going to give you specifics? No. you have any specific films or any? I can't think of any, but off, off the top of my head, I... The famous line that, I mean, that one... That I think I might have even heard that line before I saw the film. Way back in the 80s, there was, where I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, there was a radio station and these two DJs, they always used to play that line. And I, I remember thinking, what what is that? I think it was even before I saw the movie. So that line has just been used so many times. Of course, you have the the rise in popularity of that gun, the Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum six-shot revolver. And another one, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he said that Clint Eastwood and this movie were really big influences for him, kind of the whole wise-cracking cop who was a law unto himself. And a lot of people 
have indicated that this movie was a big influence on the development of, I'm sure you remember it, absolutely classic 70s crime series, The Streets of San Francisco. You remember I that one? I've heard of it. I don't think I've oh, seen it. Oh, you've never seen that? Oh, man. That's worthy of an entire series unto itself one day. Hopefully when I get this podcast really up and running and we start churning out episodes, I'd love to do some series. Yeah, it's a great, absolutely fantastic, has a great um, soundtrack and the acting in it. Um, I think Are they Michael, Michael Duck, no, it was a series. It was a series. It was, I think it was a one hour show, I believe. It was, you know, every episode wrapped up by the end of the episode. I think Michael Douglas was originally in it. And then later a different actor came into play. And speaking of Schwarzenegger, he starred in one role he guest starred. I'll never forget that episode where he was an out of control. Like he worked at, I think he worked at a beer plant and he, he wouldn't go along with the union and he just snapped and started like, I forget the exact details of that episode, but yeah, that was a fantastic series. Loved it. So anything else you want to talk about related to the MDNA segment? I think I've covered just about everything in the other segments. I can't think of anything left. Oh, I forgot. One more final quick segment. We didn't do it in the first episode, and it's going to be very quick. It's called Dropped the Reading Glasses, a segment where we put forth half-baked readings on films backed up with so-called evidence. So I've been going on about it throughout this episode. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think... I know you don't agree with me, but I think there, it was intentional. There's some similarities between Scorpio and Harry Callahan. The ultraviolence, the perhaps maybe even Scorpio is a bit, in some of his views, right wing. I mean, look at some of his victims. Um, not that that is a litmus test of where your political Beliefs lie. And again, this is going to be probably the wildest stretch. <laughs> yeah, they don't look similar, but of any other two characters in the films, maybe the hairstyle a bit. I mean, right. yeah, sure, those kind of hairstyles were common in the in the 70s. Um, what do you think, your final judgment on my little half-baked theory? I didn't convince well, you, no? <laughs> I would say... No, but good try. I mean, in reality, I think with with symbolism and themes, a lot of it is guesswork anyway. And then a lot of themes get attributed to films that the writer or director had no intention on, but people develop these. The theme is this, where the writer said, no, it isn't. So I think with that, it's open to interpretation, and that's a good thing. You can You can take what you want out of it. So... If it was intentional or not with the cross and the Jesus save sign, there was no religious message and none of the people involved in the movie really had any religious religiosity to them. But it could have just made for a good visual and irony or it could have been 
you know, the fall of mankind. I, I really don't know. I mean, anything's possible, but I didn't really read any theme into that. Um, and his victims, I mean, perhaps, or perhaps he chose those victims because they would stand out. I, d- I don't know. Fair enough. What about you, Justin? Do you have anything to add to this segment? Any kind of readings on this film that might be a bit of a stretch? Well, we've discussed them all, the the views that why some actors didn't want to take the role and how it doesn't really didn't really fit in with the Hollywood narrative that began kind of around that time, late 60s, where kind of started more often than not Certain types of views were presented in films, certain issues, and then certain types were usually left off, um, left out. But I would say that this period in films is my favorite, like late 60s, early 70s. I really like the look of films in that time. Um, you see a lot of interesting um types of movies that would not get made today, not just because they're taboo, but just no one would make them because they wouldn't make any money. And a lot of actors wouldn't take these roles. I think of early roles in that around this time of with Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, even other Clint Eastwood movies. He did a uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with Jeff Bridges, which he also, which was an excellent movie. I recommend that was in the, the Iger sanction that was based on a book, but a lot of these kind of, I wouldn't call them artsy, but they're just movies that I think many of them would not be made today unless they were quote unquote indie films and geared towards that kind of market. So I agree with you. I absolutely love films from this era, late sixties, all through the seventies, love the look and feel the soundtrack. Just all those downbeat endings, just like this one had, I just, I just love this era. So I guess that's pretty much it, Justin. We pretty much talked about everything about this movie. Would you, in the end, would you recommend this to other people? Absolutely. If I were to recommend one cop movie, this would be it. Um, especially from the seventies. I just, because it's, it's dark yet it's entertaining makes you think a little bit and the acting is good. The the soundtrack is great. I just, I just had a strong memory of that movie before I knew anything about these issues we talked about. I just thought this movie's creepy. It looks great. I really like the character. And for that reason alone, I would recommend this movie. I absolutely love this movie. I'll watch it again. I'll recommend it to people was a bit controversial then, still a bit controversial. But yeah, absolutely fantastic movie, Dirty Harry from 1971. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Anytime. I'll see you next time. And that's it for the second episode of the Crime Narrative Podcast. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to my guest, Justin. If you have any feedback, please send me an email at crimenarrativepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Crime Narrative. And check out the website crimenarrative.com. I know I talked about it at the end of the last episode and didn't follow through 
but we are going to be discussing Psycho very soon. That upload should be coming in the near future. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Crime Narrative Podcast.